Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the You Should Run podcast. I am your host, as always, Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I've talked with people from every state, from Maine to Hawaii, Alaska to Florida, all points in between, and all parts of uh, uh, office, from school board to U.S. Senate, and uh, including a few members of Congress, and including some people who have gone from being a legislator to Congress, including Jasmine Crockett from Texas and Melanie Stansbury from New Mexico, which is the only podcast I've done from New Mexico. Today, I'm excited to go back to talk to someone who may take the same path. I don't know. This is a lot of success. So, like, you know, it's a stepping stone. I, they used to call it the Colbert bump when Stephen Colbert had his show. So my new friend, Andrew Romero, she is a state representative from New Mexico, and maybe she's going to be following those footsteps because of this podcast. We'll see. But she has an extensive history of community involvement, uh, a really cool history in her own past with uh, starting businesses, uh, legal work. Uh, her family is from New Mexico, and she has strong roots in her community, and now she's serving New Mexico in the state legislature. So we're going to share her story, and hopefully you'll be encouraged to run for office too. Um, so Representative Romero, thank you so much for talking today. Hi, thanks, Tony. Such a pleasure to be here. Um, it's so exciting to be able to share about a place that not many people nationally get a good um, idea of. And of course, I'm born and raised New Mexican, so love to share everything New Mexico with everyone as every chance that I get. Yeah, I think people look at New Mexico and they kind of forget it's there. Arizona gets a ton of um, attention, Texas, obviously. Um, but, and, and even Utah, which is right there, like sometimes people are talking about that because of Mormonism or Mitt Romney when he ran for president, Colorado obviously gets a ton of attention. Um, what are people missing about New Mexico? Why are we, uh, cause the only thing people talk about New Mexico with is obviously Breaking Bad, but that's not a fair assessment of it. I'm sure. That's not fair. Um, certainly great because we have an amazing film industry, um, incentive and an incredibly booming industry in film. Um, and in the arts generally. So we have a lot of arts and culture. These are the things that the tourists come for, for sure, um, that we, we love to share. Um, you know, we just have a really unique history. We're a small state by population, right? So just over 2 million people. Um, but we're the most rural state as it comes to the size of our state. So even more than Alaska, we actually mm. are considered the most rural. Um, but that, by all means, you know, my district um, and in northern New Mexico where I reside, you know, I live in the city of Santa Fe, which is about 80,000 people, 100,000 by greater area, um, which is the perfect size for me <laughs> for having understood what's going on in Albuquerque where about a million people live. Um, and, you know, the, the reality of New Mexico is that we have all four seasons. For me, I ski in the winter. We do winter sports. Um, in the summer, it's all outdoors. We're in the mountains, right? We're in the high desert. So I'm at 7,000 feet uh, most of all of my days. Um, so we're just, you know, it's a real outdoorsy hiking, biking. We have a huge outdoor industry, um, you know, and you can be in the middle of nowhere within 10 minutes or be in the middle of the city um, with just a walk away uh, where I am. So, you know, lots and lots of history. And we go back, you know, to indigenous history, which um, in many ways, my, my district, I represent four sovereign pueblos. Um, so, so four sovereign nations within our, you know, our state. We have 19 pueblos throughout. We also have four um, tribes that we work with. Um, so, you know, looking at different tribal interests across the state, it's so diverse, um, you know, multilingual, 
think we have the second largest Vietnamese population Mm -hmm. um, outside of, I think, California in Albuquerque area. You know, so it's really just it's so interesting um, to just walk around and understand that, you know, New Mexico um, is certainly (laughs) has a lot of roots in the history of Mexico, Spain. Um, Prior to that, of course, just the territories of, um, you know, what was going on prior to even Spanish settlement. So it's just, there's just so much history to share, so much culture to share. Um, and then the growth that we have looking to the future is really, I'm very optimistic. We are in a complete boom right now. We're the second largest oil producer in the United States next to Texas. A lot of people, it, it, that's crazy for me, but also dealing with climate, we're, mm-hmm. we're in a historic drought. So we got everything here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to go um, entirely because there's just so much to talk about with the future of New Mexico and, and some of the historic strides that we've made in our legislature as well. Well, you've made those strides because you're in the legislature. And, you know, the first question I usually ask people is, you, like you said, you have family that's been there for many generations. More generations than most of us can count our generations. I can't go back more than four for my own family uh, anywhere. Right. Uh, so, um, but what made you decide with all these roots, with all this activity here and, and your own interesting background, including work overseas, why did you decide to run for the state legislature? I think when it comes to what happens so locally post, well, living in the Trump era for me, I had always, you know, been participant to different you know, political happenings. Um, But when it became very personal and very real that our democracy was affecting our own backyard and what could we do as individual citizens to, for me really at that time in 2016, hold the line for what the future might bring and really what our values were as as a community and as a state was stepping up to the plate to really be able to enact the values and to make sure that we were actually participant in that as a community. Um, and I actually ran against an incumbent at the time who was in, in office going for his third term. And it was a terrifying, it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was all about the reality of where I thought our community was. I, I thought we were progressive. It turns out we are. Um, I thought we were, you know, really looking for more, a less moderate sort of take on what the future would hold from our district's perspective and what we could cast votes on, what, what, you know, we would propose as legislation. And that all turned out to be true. Um, But I think for the reality for me was really putting skin in the game where I was never going to put my name on a ballot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was never going to go get the signatures. I was never going to do any of that until no one else would. (laughs) And I was compelled by my neighbors and friends to basically say, what about you? Like, why aren't you doing this? Um, if you're so passionate about it. And that was my conviction and certainly became my reality for what I chose to become. Now I've noticed from talking with people across the country, um, that there are some quote unquote blue states that have been re- um, regularly democratic, uh, New York, um, Hawaii, for example, and maybe New Mexico as well. I don't know. You can tell me um, that have had re- uh, democratic governors and legislatures, but maybe there's been a lot of complacency. So the D next to the name didn't necessarily mean it was very liberal in terms of the elected uh, infrastructure. Um, and then you have some other states um, where they're more. Um, purple or even red, where the Democratic Party has, because they're struggling to get into the in, into power, maybe has more energy amongst the progressive base to, to do stuff. Is that something you've noticed in New Mexico? Was there like a complacency and someone just had to shake it up? 
Or, you know, was it something that was there and maybe you just couldn't realize it because, I don't know, something else? Is, was there a complacency? Is it still there? I wouldn't call it complacency so much as it was this sort of idea that we were all you know, more moderate, excuse me, or more conservative as a state Mm -hmm. and that we had to be quite tread very lightly as it were to maintain the democratic base that we had. We were always democratic as a state, right? We've always had a 60% majority Democrat, like very solidly democratic state. Um, But this, these undulations that we'd see with governors who were elected Republicans um, we're just kind of shocking to the Democratic base and saying, well, maybe we just are really much more conservative. But when we would talk to voters and you'd really and really you go around the state and ask them what's important, most of their ideals and their, um, you know, where we stood as a state were quite more progressive than as a state base. Mm-hmm. So I think it was just really putting out there that we had to sort of tread lightly on truly center centered Democrat issues rather than center political spectrum issues. And I think when we saw that shift in 2016 um, to, to 2018 with so many people in our state really coming up for office, brand new, never run for office before, never even really towed any sort of line in the political spectrum. I think in the last five years, we've really seen a market shift in a very much more out there, progressive, out there casting votes. We are on the right side of these issues as Democrats, rather than trying to play this sort of game with we are quite moderate. And and I just don't think the electorate has shown that. And in fact, with the many you know, strides that we've had in the past five years with a Democratic governor and then her getting elected a second time for a second term, we've really moved the needle um, on education. We are the first state to have an endowment for early childhood education in perpetuity. Um, We have done some incredible things with protecting abortion access, uh, reproductive health rights, including making sure that Texas and Arizona can't tell us what to do um, in our state as well. I mean, there are so many different things that um, I think we've moved the needle on and really perhaps even became uh, the poster child for. But the model of New Mexico in the past was that we're, we're a poor state. We're trying to figure it out. Our economy's not that great. And now we just have seen a completely different way in which we're looking at the lens in which we invest and, and move things forward. Um, but, you know, that, those social ideals that we share as, as Democrats, I think, in making sure that the whole picture is, is painted, um, that we're really putting our investments there where they belong. Yeah, I saw an interview with you recently where uh, I think it was from the last election where they're talking about a surplus in the New Mexico budget, if I'm correct. And here in Pennsylvania, we've had so many um, back and forth debates about fully funding education. There's so many education disparities. So when I saw how would you spend your money, the surplus, I know everyone I know in Pennsylvania and the Democrat would say, oh, we're going to invest in education. So I was surprised when that wasn't your answer. And then I was obviously because you could have already done that. Um, so how does, how does investing in one thing kind of free you up to look at other topics? What have you done as a result of being able to address one thing to move on to the next? I think that's exactly it is when you have like in your basic budget, all of your values there with education, taking care of healthcare, taking care of, you know, everyday people from childcare to the, you know, transportation, the spectrum of need. Um, then now we're looking at, okay, now how do we get out of this boom and bust cycle of, yes, we're the second largest supplier of, of oil and gas in the United States. 
Um, that is certainly when we look at climate change, we need to transition because mm -hmm. that is not sustainable. And we, we look at all of the markets and we're actually projecting the largest surplus out of any other state um, in the nation right now. Um, our economists are like, look here, this is so historic. We're, we, we're, we're going to be set for maybe a decade, um, but there's a recession pending. Mm -hmm. There's all of these other things that are happening. Um, but we need to make that sort of the basis of our budget. But now we can actually talk about climate change infrastructure, looking at economic diversity in ways that we've never had before, looking at things like geothermal and biotech and areas of the future that we're saying um, aren't just tech centered per se, um, like we don't want to be Silicon Valley in California. And we've seen how that sort of played out, but really a very diverse set of opportunities and for us you know the we have to make the economics work in order for this to continue and that really goes with economic diversity but if we have the social programs that that are in perpetuity and we that's our bread and butter you know an industry wants to come in all of us want to grow but do it in the way that's culturally sensitive to our environment um and our our needs and our history um, but we can plan that into it. And so it, it really creates an incredible opportunity for our future as a state. And I'm so lucky to be a legislator at a time where we can be in, in charge of that future, um, where so many in the past have really been in the bust cycles where there is no oil and gas production. Um, but again, we're wrestling with this sort of um, schizophrenic place where we're like, we're really happy about the money, but also terrified about climate change and terrified about what the future holds for our state. So how can we be cognizant of we're in this place? We want to look to the future. Yeah. I know as a younger, well, I was younger. Um, I guess we all were at one point, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have two kids and, and if, when I bought my house, we didn't have kids. I was in my early thirties. Um, and if I lived in Arizona or Texas or may maybe another state around there and they had the education issues that they have now and I saw what you were doing in New Mexico, well, it would be a pretty easy move to me to think about where I'm going to raise my kids. The other thing about being young, though, is that there's a, it's hard to get young people to run for office. And you're a younger person in office, um, especially when you ran, you know, um, and I know the legislature in every state, sometimes it's hard to get younger people involved, but the barrier for entry is often very difficult, um, both to being a candidate and to being a representative. I know the pay for legislators in New Mexico is among the worst in the country. Um, what have you done to, have you, have, how have you been working on making, being a legislator more accept, um, accessible, especially for younger people who might want to follow your path? That is the key question for the future of our sort of modernizing our legislature. Um, right now in our legislature, we do not get paid. We're actually the last volunteer legislature. We are a citizen legislature um, by uh, constitution. So we are prohibited from getting paid by constitution, um, which prevents so many people um, from being able to do this type of work or even consider it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very lucky in that I live in the capital city. And that means that I can go to the capital without having to spend eight hours in a vehicle, which many of my colleagues have to, um, to drive back and forth from their home community into our state capital. So again, when you look at the barriers to entry, those are huge. Um, also, as a small business owner and as you know, somebody who can do legal work on my own time, 
I can make my own schedule and then have the flexibility to be back and forth to legislative duties. Not a lot of people can do that either. Um, so it lends itself to being like really retiree friendly. Um, and certainly those that don't have everyday responsibilities, parents, um, those they, they can do that. Granted, we have a legislature filled with um, moms and dads, um, with, you know, kids of school age. Um, they have such major sacrifices that they've made and they continue to make in, um, in, in order to serve our legislature. And so, you know, we are so grateful for that because it creates a really diverse group of people really leading the charge who understand what everyone's going through. Um, that said, we are working to modernize our legislature. We would consider ourselves to be quite a weak legislative body mm -hmm. um, because we can't work full time. So therefore, all of the staff who work for us and the folks who've been there for eons, you know, they know more than us. Um, a lot of the time they know more than, you know, and they're, we're, we're relying on them to feed us that information, including lobbyists, including, you know, so how do you get that information? So modernization really means looking at how to pay people, how to ensure that we're responding to the needs of everyone so that they can all come to the table. So we're looking at all of that. We have studies. We weren't able to do anything in our last session, um, but it really is the future of how we how we lead as a legislature to make that the platform for what we do next. Um, and, and that means a constitutional change, which is not easy, <laughs> but um, it can happen at any time. Uh, you know, we can bring that up any session to, to do that. And so we're, we're, keep, we're continuing, we're still pushing um, but I'm unique in that I do, I, it'll, I have a job that allows me to do that, but it's still extremely challenging to make ends meet when we, you have this passion project and this volunteer work that you love so much. Yeah, to me, I, I value um, paying legislators well. I'm, I'm a local council member, so I don't get paid much at all because it's local and I appreciate that. That's fine. I'm not asking for it myself, but I feel like um, public service should be something that is valued. Um, and, you know, talk about the news today, um, in my birthday week. So it's a celebration or a sad thing in a way, not my birthday, but this, this news. <laughs> but also, I don't know. And before I get to the news, you know, how do you value public service now that you've been in there? Like, has your view of it changed or a, diff a different kind of appreciation for it? Certainly a different kind of appreciation. It's truly something that you can't quite comprehend until you're doing the work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think it's just one of those things where it's so, for me, it's so powerful. Like I tell constituents, I have this ritual experience before I hit my button, yes or no, on, a, on an issue to just think about like the youngest member of our society and the eldest and like that this is for them. And, you know, I represent tw 22,000 people in our district um, and we're really spread out. Um, and again, Native people, we have, um, you know, our Latino population and everyone across the spectrum. And it's just something for me that like, it's so important um, that we're taking these things seriously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm from a public policy background and democracy in and of itself, as we've been in this era for the past, I don't know, we'll say six years, for me has just made it so much more clear um, that what we're doing is, is needs to be, you know, at the forefront of, of what we're doing, what we, what we do locally, I think it needs to be understood that, that it shouldn't be taken lightly globally. Um, and I, yeah, certainly just try to have that mindset about like every, everything matters, um, that we're, that we're working toward. Um, but also just 
you know, humbling myself as well, that like, there are so many losses in this work that it can't crush you. You got to keep going as well. Um, and so, yeah, just trying to be mindful of that and, and really grateful for the people that do this work at all levels of government. It is not easy. And it, most of it is pretty thankless um, because we live, you know, democracy is in scarcity. You always campaign on the things that need to change for the better um, and don't necessarily always celebrate the great stuff. Um, it's always what we can do better. So, um, you know, I just, I so appreciate the folks that stick with it. Yeah. And I want to go back to some New Mexico issues in a minute, but I have to bring up that today, a former president was under arrest. Uh, the headlines on CNN, MSNBC, uh, Fox, everything about Donald Trump for abusing his, his past office, abusing uh, parts of public service with confidential classified documents. Uh, and he's on tape. It's not like just an accusation. It's stuff where, like, even if it's not actionable under the law in the, in the end, I don't know what will happen. Um, he's presumed innocent under the law. But he's done things that you and I would never do. Or, well, we will never have the access to that information probably, too. How, as someone who values public service, how are you viewing this news and what it means to you and the country, uh, you know, as a legislator and to the country as a whole? So first thing that comes to mind for me is that the rule of law prevails mm -hmm. and that, you know, as we've seen sort of the testing of the waters of who is above the law and who isn't, that this holds accountable perhaps the most powerful people in our world, mm -hmm. um, but certainly in our country. And that to me is that the foundations of law, having studied law and loving the law and making the laws that you, that you understand the importance that we all have to abide by the rules, every single one of us um, for me. So that's, I think, number one. Number two is that there was a compromise of American lives mm -hmm. <laughs> that could have happened or maybe did happen if with the information that was as per the transcript, so flippantly handled. And I think the level to which we're saying there was an importance with classified information, but what was in these documents, we don't quite know, but we know how they're, you know, categorized um, and classified. But this is about people's safety. It's about their lives. It's about their security. It's about global security. It's about global strategy. That these are such, like, and I think it's, you know, yes, we've heard about the classified documents, but this is sensitive information that protects the safety and security of American citizens and perhaps our allies. And th that to me is just so shocking that some of that has gotten lost, I think, in the conversation about why accountability on these strict liability offenses, where it's like whether or not you knew you, what was in them and the importance of that we're going to hold you accountable to this, to classified information. And I think, you know, as we've sort of, for me at least, thought about what what was in there and why it's so important that we hold people accountable to that at all levels um, it is why it's so important. So I, I'm, you know, I'm so grateful again that the rule of law prevails, um, but why we're doing this and why it's so critical to the future of our country, um, I think is, is not lost. And I'm, really grateful to the bold and very thorough individuals who have the special counsel and the folks at the DOJ who have, you know, done their, the right thing today. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that if you don't have people accountable to laws and they're not laws they're just suggestions, right? hundred percent. 
And I also think it's sad when I see people who know better, right? Like I saw Senator Rubio from Florida, other people who are saying making excuses that they would never make if any other person had done these things. And to me, like you've worked with people across the aisle, you you've probably met with people at higher levels of office too, because you have your own background before being in the in office. They know better, right? They, I think that to me is like when my next when my neighbor down the street who was at the insurrection. When he says dumb stuff, I'm like, oh, that's that dumb guy. But, like, when it's a senator, it's like, you've gone through this process, right? Like, you weren't, you didn't just come off the, the truck today, like, just born into the Senate. You know that this is wrong. Have you seen now, through your time in office, people who you're like, you want to just shake them by the collar and say, you know this is right or wrong. You know the difference. It just kind of hurts your soul in a bit, right? Hundred percent. I think that you know, like it, it's interesting because I I feel like so many of even my colleagues on the other side of the aisle understand this so clearly and would never like, mm-hmm. and I would never even think of them as a category. We don't have. I mean, I guess I don't want to you know be too <laughs> bold, um, but we don't have a lot of the the MAGA Republicans mm-hmm. in our state that are in office. I think. Uh, the electorate for that, I suppose, um, or at least that hasn't come to like some deep fruition where it's it's out in the open in a way that um, you can't trust people to do the right thing, I guess. And I'm not putting mag all mag Republicans yeah, yeah, yeah. in that category. I think just generally where we've seen this sort of idea of we don't need to follow the rules. Um, you know, I don't know where that comes from generally, um, but this movement to be like, why would we hold this person accountable because he was the president? You know, I've, you've heard that argument um, or the idea that they, they shouldn't have to pay the same time um, or, you know, follow the same rules. Yeah. You don't just want to shake them. And I think we, I mean, for me, it's more so at the national level than I have ever seen locally. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because there's not enough of them to go around in New Mexico or again, small communities. Um, or in our community, but it, yeah, it is, it's just so shocking when we all hopefully share the same values and the foundations of our oaths to our, you know, our, our constitutions, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like this defies all gravity when it comes to folks just completely saying that does, that they don't, you know, have to hold the same standards to everyone. Well, speaking of things that you do have to take seriously, is, and that's something that's unique to New Mexico, and I have to bring it up, is water issues. Um, and I know you've talked about it. I've seen some comments from you before um, online, and uh, it's something that the rest of the country does not understand. I don't understand it in the same way here in Pennsylvania. What do people outside of New Mexico maybe need to understand about this issue? Um, and what are some of the things you can do as a legislator? Because I imagine a lot of the bigger problems are maybe outside of your control, but I don't know. Uh, yes and no. I mean, we do have many treatises with, that are, you know, functions of the U.S. government that we have to follow. We've saw, we've seen in the national news about what's going on with the Colorado River. That was a we were pretty minorly, um, you know, sort of affected by that as a state. Um, that said, we as a state deal with extreme drought, um, and we are in this period of extreme drought. Uh, oddly enough, our local area hasn't had the same experiences. Again, high desert, we're in the mountains, we're in the Rocky Mountains. So our state is just so geographically diverse. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but what we have to understand about the Southwest, and, and in particular, I think about what New Mexico does differently, is that we have planned our state in a much more communal sort of way, where when I go to you know Phoenix and see palm trees and bodies of water out in 113 degree weather, we just don't have that in mm. Mexico. Um, and, you know, I think when we think about future generations and how that's been the kind of the collective consciousness of, of how we plan, that that's not lost on us as well, that we're really thinking about our future. Um, we still have golf courses, don't get me wrong. We still have lots of tourism. It's certainly, ha we have a lot of work to do. We were just talking about uh, you know, discharge permits that could be contaminated that are being issued by the federal government right now. And we haven't handled our wetlands properly. Um, you know, so there's just a lot going on as we see the interplay where New Mexico is a true checkerboard of water management. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to above ground, below ground, water that's running east versus water that's running west, we have different departments that deal with it. Um, and certainly we have federal lands and state lands and, of course, tribal lands that all of these different, um, you know, bodies of water, pun intended, really legitimately um, have have say in um, New Mexico's legislature can do a lot to purpose the funds that are needed. But as we discussed today, it takes so much more than funding. We need to be able to put folks in place to mitigate extreme drought and truly plan for the future of uh, how we do it. Um, certain areas have done it better mm -hmm. than others. Santa Fe is a very progressive, like our city water system is very, very progressive um, in the way that it manages and prices water, but water can be expensive the more that you use it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but that's the way we've, we've done it. Um, and it really does work for conservation. And in fact, we use less water per capita in Santa Fe today um, than we did in the 1990s. Wow. Um, in fact, like, I think at a, like 20, I think we're at like 75% less per capita, which is insane. And it's just about pricing water in the better ways, low flow toilets, low flow shower heads, um, and just making it systemic. Um, and so really how can we continue to be leaders in that, but make sure that it, it touches all um, communities. And again, with the rurality of our state, we have to be really cognizant of that. Um, but we are still governed by this, law called first in time, first in right. And if you had a water right way back in the day uh, when they were dishing them out um, and you were grandfathered into, you know, as we've continued to progress in our policies, um, if you don't use that water, you lose it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's a really unfortunate sort of way in which we have to figure out how to deal with that property, right? Um, because you can't take it away. <laughs> um, yet we are forced to deal with the fact that people want to use their rights and yet we um are in a drought we we need to figure out how to deal with it we haven't figured that out and i think that's going to be the most complicated um issue that we deal with moving forward since it, it is a make or break sort of situation with how we govern how we use water um appropriately into a, additional drought um and additional years of drought moving forward yeah, when I talked to legislators in Arizona recently, they know it's a problem, but all there are people on the other side of the aisle who kind of want to kick the can down the road and aren't addressing it. It sounds like in New Mexico, not only are you going to address it, but you've been aware of it for many years now and have at least been doing something. 
Yes. And I think the challenge is to, again, going back to the economics, we are 75% of our water use actually goes to agriculture. Right. But that means everything from alfalfa, which is an extremely low value crop, mm-hmm. um, to cannabis, which you could, you know, we have incredibly high tech systems that are just using drips of water and perhaps the least getting the highest amount of yield and the highest amount of money for the crop. Um, so we, we haven't had a strategy around that water use, um, but we're all thinking about it. Even our governor had a task force on water addressing policy needs. Um, and we're this, I mean, I was just at a water natural resources meeting. It is the longest agenda of an 11 day interim session of any other committee that we have um, that I've attended. And I'm on about eight different committees. So it was like water in, and natural resources in particular water is our focus um, as a legislature because in New Mexico we say uh, agua es vida, water is life, and without it nothing survives. And we're constantly aware of that um, in the desert for sure. Now I hope you don't mind, because um, I know I go over thirty minutes, but hopefully a couple more questions here. Um, what, uh, you remind me though, because when I did talk to Melanie Stansbury, it was right at the start of the COVID pandemic, and she was talking about the very diverse communities. Um, the native communities and how they're, they're, they're not just, it's not the native community area. It's like all these diverse areas in, in New Mexico uh, and how to address them for healthcare disparities, environmental, education, et cetera. When you go to the legislature, the difference really doesn't seem to be Democrat versus Republican. Um, it seems like there's this great diversity of trying to build a coalition. Um, how, how are you building coalitions to solve some of these bigger statewide problems? Is that a challenge? Is it something that people are able to buy into easily because that diversity has been there for a while? I think it's, it's an asset in that we're not necessarily thinking about, yeah, Democrat or Republican. We really do come together as communities to try to solve these issues because we have to. I mean, mm-hmm. when it, you come to the finances of certain things, the capacity and the capacity building that's required of making sure that the subject matter experts are there, like it takes all hands. And so when we go to these, you know, statewide meetings um, on water or on infrastructure building, you'll just, it's always bipartisan because these are not unique issues to one part of the state or another. Like you have to find a common ground in order for us to move forward. Mm-hmm. And often we do. And you, you know, you hear about the like hot button issues nationally. Yeah. We're, we can talk about abortion. We can talk about gun safety. We can talk about all that. But on issues that affect everyday life that are not in the perhaps national vernacular, we agree on like probably 90% of them most of the time about anything from conservation to management to even, you know, regulation. There are certain things, sure, of course, um, where we rub up against industry or perhaps, but when we talk about like that governance every day, where it's a very cordial, very, um, respectful dialogue in understanding how, you know, people can live. And truly, because we struggle with some so many similar issues across the state that are really integrated to poverty-related issues, right, and everything that stems from that, um, we, you know, we can talk, have clear conversations about, uh, you know, public health and um, when it comes to education and the needs that we have just as foundation building for families um, and for folks to just be able to get by. A lot of those conversations are very bipartisan. 
Well, even though you have less water available than other states, it sounds very refreshing to some, to people from other states. Um, so you've gone through some really rewarding things that you've talked about with education and uh, cannabis and other, other things that help your community, the climate change. And you've also seen some challenges um, with making sure reducing the barrier of entry to legislature, uh, respect for law, et cetera. After all you've seen so far as a member of the legislature, why would you encourage others to run for office? This is a you should run podcast. Hopefully you're going to tell people, yes, you should consider it. Why would you be telling people that now is a time to make this a, a serious effort to run for office wherever they live? Well, I think, again, it's our civic duty. If you so feel that you are in a place to do that, you should. And you must, <laughs> in fact. Um, I didn't realize how you know, quite magical our entire system of governance is set up that it's just us. Like it is just us, right? We're the ones in charge. We're the ones actually doing it. Um, and this all, it's funny when you hear these like deep state, big conspiracy theories. And of course we have a ton of national, um, you know, uh, labs in our backyard here in New Mexico. And so there, you know, when we talk about the deep state and nuclear, you know, and like all of the different powers that be, and, you know, it's like, those are our neighbors. Those are our friends. Those are the PhDs mm -hmm. who are solving rocket science. Like all of these types of people that can come to the table to be part of those conversations are us, <laughs> you know, your experience and your lived experience is just as important as anyone else's. Um, and, you know, we see these icons in our, you know, our history um, who have stood up for the right thing at the right time, but they started somewhere else. Like it all happens locally first till they get to that podium um, in the Capitol, like Melanie Stansbury, who we adore. Um, you know, she was, she and I came into the state legislature at the exact same time. And, you know, now she's, she's at the, at, in Congress. And it's just, you see how that translates that it's everybody, everybody did that, you know, mm -hmm. they just started somewhere. Um, and it takes folks to just step up to the plate. And I believe me, call me <laughs> if you're doing it, because I will have your back um, because it is it can be super challenging. But it's at the end of the day, it's super rewarding when you see the needle move for sure. Well, speaking of calling you, um, if, if people are interested in get, reaching out to you online, social media, whatever, what's the best way that people can learn more about Andrea and uh, maybe reach out and decide to pick your brain about running for office themselves? Yeah, so I'm at andrearomero.com. Um, you can email me, andrea at andrearomero.com. I'm on all forms of social media, LinkedIn, uh, maybe not Snap. <laughs> but um, if we, if you want to get in touch with me, all of those forms, Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, yeah, Facebook, all of those things, um, definitely hit me up. Love to support new candidates. Um, certainly get inspired every single day by the new and incredible ideas out there. And we need them. And, mm -hmm. you know, it takes new folks to come in and shake things up just the way I did perhaps five years ago um, that we've been told, like, without you, yeah, who knows? You know, and, and it's just a confidence building to hear those conversations. Um, but certainly here to support the folks that are the next generation of that as well. Well, I appreciate that you ran. Hopefully someone else will be listening. They'll consider running themselves. Uh, if you take the rule of law seriously, which you should, especially this week, uh, please listen to uh, Andrea Romero, and you, you should run for office too. Thanks so much, Representative. Thank you so much, Tony. Such a pleasure. And best of luck in New Mexico. <laughs> My pleasure and honor. Thanks. Thanks.